You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Hey, it's so, wow, it was really, really good. Good job. Hey, it's really good to be here with you. If you're watching at home online, we are so glad that you're tuning into Kingsway this morning. We're really glad you're here. We are wrapping up just kind of the short four-week series, and uh, the goal of the series was not to say some big new piece of information about Kingsway. It was simply to look at who we are as a church, where, who we believe God has created us to be as we go forward. We live in a great community. There are so many great churches in, in a five-mile radius of our church, and uh, what we often find when we look at churches here in America where that's the case is each church kind of has its own unique DNA. And uh, we often talk about this as churches, as other pastors where, oh, you're doing this event, you're doing that kind of thing. Okay, well, we'll, we'll stay over here in this field and we'll focus on these things because we have no competition with any Christian or church in the community who loves Jesus is trying to lift up his name. We're on the same team. We're trying to accomplish the same goals of lifting up the name of Jesus because Jesus says, when you lift me up, I will draw all men, all women, all children to my Myself. So that's our goal as a church. What we've been doing is talk about how we uniquely do that as a church. And the way that I want to set this up today, as I always do, I want to ask you an annoying question. Somebody said recently, you know what we ought to do? We ought to build a small group around the questions that Matt asks, because usually when he asks it, I think, oh, that's really good. I should probably think about that. That's what I want to do today. You ready? So here we go. And I've asked a similar question to this before. So just to think about this, here we go. At the beginning of 2020, at the end of your life, how will you know if you succeeded? So wherever you are today, I am years old today. That's where I sit. And uh, I don't know how old you are. You might be in your 20s thinking you've got a million years left. You might be somewhere older than that thinking you don't have as many. And uh, if I say a number, I get in trouble every time. But I know that I'm probably, they say, maybe the halfway point. I should be buying a Corvette or something today. I don't know. Anyway, I'm in that range in my 40s. And as I look at my life, my priorities have changed over time. Have yours? When I was, say, 16 or 17, and I thought 25 years old was old. When I was in that range, I had a handful of priorities. Mainly, they focused on one day getting out of high school, one day finding a wife, having children, having a job that paid me millions of dollars, having 2.5 kids, the perfect family, the perfect scenario. But because I was 16, I knew that that was how I wanted to end my life. But at that point, I was pretty much focused on sports and girls. And since I had to get decent grades, I guess those too. As I moved into my early 20s and I decided to go into Bible college and God got my attention, my priorities changed. I was going to do something significant in the world. I was going to change the world. Does that feel about right for you? And then as I got into my 30s and I didn't yet have kids and I started thinking, God, maybe, maybe my plans for kids aren't going to work, my priorities shifted again. Then when I find myself at 43 and my kids are now getting into the middle school range and my priorities are shifting again. And here's the unique shift that's happened in me and I don't know yet if it's happened in you. I no longer care about my name. I don't care about whether I become great. I don't care about the 2.5 kids. My, one of my kids you know, would have to be short or something to make that happen. I've already got three of them. I don't care about a big house. I don't care about the Corvette. What I care about is what I said at the very beginning. At the end of my day, the only thing that's gonna be significant is if the name of Jesus is made great. And here's why. Let me tell you what the guy on stage feels. It's what every single person feels. And they, uh, they actually have terms for this in the psychology world. 
I know that there's nothing significant in Matt Nickerson. That's me. For those of you visiting, hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. There's nothing significant in Matt Nickerson that's worth following apart from him. I am woefully aware at every moment of all my weaknesses, of all my failures, of all my struggles, of all my temptations, and I carry those all the time. The, tar- the term for this is actually imposter syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this thing, this phenomenon. Imposter syndrome is this idea that we think everybody else is better and smarter and faster and stronger and knows more and is more, is more better than all of us. See, I can't even speak good, in- good English. And um, it's been said that Albert Einstein actually had imposter syndrome. Isn't that a little bit ironic? The goal here, the point though, is to anchor my heart, anchor my soul in something, but not necessarily something, someone bigger and greater than me because when I do that, my life has meaning. My life has meaning. And this, by the way, is why our first core value as a church is celebration. We love God. We love God because he first loved us. That's the reality the reason we gather together and worship is not because you want to hear Matt Nickerson preach. Trust me, there are on the internet podcasts that go back years and years and years. You can hear all kinds of things that I say. I may even contradict myself at times on things that I've changed my mind on. If you're fascinated by that kind of thing. But it won't mean anything. Someday I'll be gone and some other guy will stand on the stage. That's just what God does. What makes life significant is that God loved us and God is huge. He's so huge. He's so big. He's so big that in our next series, we're going to take a look at just how big he is. We're going to do our best to go through the scriptures, look at this world that he made, and try to right-size God. And I'm telling you, it's an impossible task. No matter how hard we try, I'm going to fail at the task. But we're going to do our best to see God in his bigness because he's huge and he's awesome and he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you and he wants to grow you and he wants to pour himself into you. So we show up and we just say, we love God. If nothing else happens in this life, we just wanna get that one right. We love God over and over and over. John says it this way, 1 John chapter 4, verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. God is love. Love comes from him. It pours out from him into you. So we love him. And part of the way that we love him is we love him by loving each other. That's our second core value. Community. We love each other. That's why we've been pushing the women's retreat, the men's retreat, all those things I've talked about. I'm not going to hit them again. But that's why we do all those things. Jesus, when he's on the earth, though, he says this. And this is fascinating. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command that I give you, love one another. How is this a new command? If you were a Jewish person in Jesus' day and you were to read the, what we call the Old Testament, they didn't call it that, but if you were to read that book, you would see the concept of loving each other all over. In fact, much of what Jesus taught about love actually comes out of Leviticus chapter 18, I believe it is. It's not, it's not that the concepts are totally new, but Jesus says, I am giving you a new command, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And the reason it's powerful is because what Jesus said is everything you've seen me model for you, model it for others. Everything that I've done in your life, do it for others. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So love comes from God, he gives it to us, and then we pour it into each other. Now, here's the summary. You could walk away after this if you uh, need to. Please don't. But you could walk away after this. 
We could basically say as a church, we're about two things, loving God and loving others. And that would be enough of a summary. But the hard part is, as a Christian, is God really breaks those love one another's down into two categories. One is in the family of faith, and one is outside the family of faith. Now, we're to love both groups, but we do love them differently. We make a different set of commitment to both of them. And so in order to fulfill the call of God to love one another the way that God has loved us, we must pour into both and think through it. For instance, Paul at one point says, be generous to everybody, but first to the family of believers, then to the unbelievers. Because if there is a limitation, if there are priorities, if you don't have unlimited resources, which I'm assuming you don't, then you're gonna have to choose who you first pour into before you pour into others. But don't stop there. Don't stop at loving each other. America is filled with churches who stopped there. Our community has many great churches. But America is filled with churches that stopped at loving the family of faith. And you cannot fulfill the call of God if you stop at loving the family of faith. You must always push beyond the boundaries of just loving the family of faith. You must go outside the walls of a church and love the world. And here's the hard part, and I just want to warn you now. It's dangerous out there. It's scary out there. You're gonna be hurt out there. You might get taken advantage of out there. You might be lied to, deceived, stabbed in the back, maybe even literally. Gossiped about. You're gonna find it's a dog-eat-dog world. You're gonna meet somebody and love them in the name of Jesus and they might be coming along in their faith and the next thing you know, it's the, they've gone all the way back again. And it's messy. Oh, but when one of them understands the profound love of God that comes from the depths of who he is, it makes it all worth it. It makes it all worth it. Compassion. It's our third core value. We love the world. We love the world. And we're willing to love the world the same way that Jesus has loved the world. And that's the critical point that you have to get today as I lay a foundation for what does it mean to love the world. And sometimes what it means is radical and sometimes what it means is hard and sometimes what it means is earth shattering. And you're gonna wrestle with this and you're gonna struggle with this and there's no great way to solve this except for don't stop wrestling. Don't stop. Run into it. Because you will not have all the answers before you go in. Now, where I wanna take you for just a moment and we're gonna build on this in just a minute is this concept. Jesus tells us, I gotta ask this question this week. Let me set this up this way. I gotta ask this question this week uh, from a friend, a, a good guy here. And he was leading his life group through last week's message. And he was kind of talking about some things. And I asked this question last week, why are you here? And I gave the answer, the reason you're here is to be loved by God and to give love from God. That's why we exist. And this person said, and, and maybe some of you had the same question. Like, okay, we love Matt, we love Kingsway, but I'm not sure that's theologically accurate. See, I've been told my whole life that in order to, the reason that I'm here, in order to uh, uh, fulfill my mission for being here is to bring glory to God. That's why I'm here. And I would say, I disagree. Except for that I fully agree. Aren't you glad you get to hear me contradict myself in the same sermon and not just you have to go back and listen? Here's why. Now stay with me, here's why. Because first of all, 
many churches in order to motivate Christians who are focused on just themselves have to say things, pastors say things to motivate you, to get you outside the walls. And we've come up with all kinds of phrases that may technically be accurate, but are missing the point. I'll give you an example of one of my pet peeves. This was very popular when I was a kid, and then I started reading my Bible and went, that's not even true. Here, ooh, I just got your attention, didn't I? Here it is. Pastors were notorious for saying this 30 years ago. I'll bet you heard it at some point. Here it is, ready? Pastor was sitting on stage, he'd preach a really passionate sermon, people are stirred in their hearts, and then he'd say, and did you know that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was thinking about you? And if you were the only person to ever receive him in the history of the world, he would have died just for you. And you'd be sitting out there going, I am really important. Do you know that's not true? And the reason it's not true is because it's missing the point. Before you were even born, there were already millions, potentially billions of Christians. So it takes the focus off what God was doing and it puts the focus on you. You're like, well, pastor, isn't that saying exactly what we're trying to say when you say our mission here, our purpose here is to bring glory to God? No, no, no. You have to get the steps in order. Order number one is God loves me. God loves me. He's love. He pours out his love. He's good. He's faithful. He's kind. He's merciful. He's choosing to love. It's not about me. It's not because I'm awesome. I'm significant. I'm five foot eight and I can't dribble with my right or left hand. I'm not that impressive. I got two left feet for hands. It's not helpful. But he loves me, not because I perform. He loves me, not because I hit a home run every time I get up on stage. He loves me for one very significant reason. He's love. And because my life is so filled up with his love, I can't keep it in. I literally can't keep it in. It just pours out of me. Because the more that he transforms me, the more that I find myself Pouring it out at others. It's like a sponge. You ever pick up a sponge that is completely sopping wet? It's soaked up as much as it can handle, and you pick it up. You don't have to squeeze it. What happens? It just drips out. It just comes out of you. And because God has loved me, I am loving him. But because I'm loving him, I find myself doing what pleases him. Because I love him, I do what pleases him. And because I do what pleases him, he gets glory. And he gets glory because I'm doing what is pleasing to him. The glory for God comes out of obedience. Jesus actually says that. He actually literally says, I have brought you glory on this earth, Father, by doing what you asked me to do. In John 74, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So the obedience comes out of love. Love doesn't come out of obedience. And this is critical because I touched on last week that God is a father and that some of us had broken earthly fathers. And some of you, your broken earthly father, the only time you got his attention is when you performed. The only time that he ever stopped and said, hey, good job. Good job, son. Good job, my daughter. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Well done. You nailed it there. And the only time that you heard that voice from your daddy was when you did something great or significant that pleased him. 
Your heavenly father says, no, I love you because I am love, because I care about you, because you're special to me. I've poured out my love into you. So therefore, as you step into that love and you really become changed and transformed by that love, you find yourself wanting to draw into that love all the time and just finding how God is so good. He's so good. He's so good. He's gooder than you'll ever know. He wants to do so many things in your life, through your life, but they don't come from you trying to earn his pleasure and acceptance. They come from the fact that he loves you. Jesus says, I am living in that love so much, so often. The fathers love me. I've loved you. Now he's looking at God and he's saying, Father, I have completed the work you gave me to do. Wait a minute. Jesus hasn't died. In fact, in John 17, he's praying in the garden. He's not even been arrested yet. I don't know what that was, but amen. (laughs) How could Jesus have finished the work that God gave him to do and he's not even died yet? How's that possible? Let's ask this question. Exactly what work did Jesus finish? You ready for a profound Bible answer today? You might want to write this down. You ready? I don't want you to miss it. All of it. It wasn't that profound, was it? It really wasn't that helpful. What work did Jesus finish? All of it. What does that mean? What it means is Jesus came. He loved the Father because the Father loved him. He drew into the Father's love. And every day he got up and did exactly what the Father asked him to do that day. And he did it over and 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 over for 33 years roughly until he eventually died on the cross and the father rose him from the dead. And why is that powerful? How do you know if you succeed in life? You simply wake up today, you lean into the father's love and you obey him. Over and over and over and over and over and over and hopefully you'll make it more than 33 years and then you'll take your last breath and God will raise you from the dead too. But now, how do I know, how do I know if I'm being obedient to the Father? How do I know if I'm living on the Father's mission? So what I wanna do is narrow in for a minute on this last core value that we have of compassion. And I want to narrow in on some texts that deal with compassion and see what we learn from the life of Jesus because that's how we know. We become like him in the world. Matthew chapter nine, verse 35. Let's start here for just a minute. It says this. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This verse isn't perfect in terms of summarizing the entire Bible, but it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Because in this one verse, we see everything that Jesus intends wrapped up in this one little verse. Here's why. So Jesus lives his life on mission. And as he woke up that day and lived inside the Father's love, the Father revealed to him specific towns and villages that he wanted him to go to. Jesus would often be in the middle of ministry. There'd be massive crowds around. Jesus would look at the disciples and say, we need to get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. And the disciples would go, but Jesus... We're trying to vote you in as king. You've got all these people here who want to be with you. You can't just leave them. Jesus would say, I have to. The father's told me I need to go. 
See, it's not about pleasing everybody else and doing what everybody else wants. It's about simply following and living in the Father's love because Jesus trusts the Father's plan. That's the goal. Then he's teaching in their synagogues. So Jesus would show up in the synagogues and reveal to them, I am who this book has been talking about. He would open up passages in Isaiah and say, look here in Isaiah, look at this passage, look at this passage, that day has come, I have come, I'm the fulfillment of these things. And then it says, he would proclaim the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom has so much more to do than just heaven. It is definitely the the, the crown jewel for all of us that one day at the end of this life, all the pain and suffering will have meaning and redemption in heaven. But it's more than that. It's about the here and now. When the people of God live the kingdom of God, this world becomes a flourishing and peaceful place. There is justice on earth. Everybody gets fed. Everybody gets cared for. Everybody gets clothed. Marriages are thriving. Children are growing up in healthy homes. Commitments are fulfilled. Faithfulness of bounds. Divorce goes away. Human trafficking goes away. The world and its evil and its vileness goes away when the kingdom of God is lived out in the people of God. And Yeah, you can clap for that. That's all for Jesus, right? And Jesus shows up and he says, this is what God's doing in me. And people are going, eh, I don't know about that. And so Jesus starts healing every disease and sickness. There's a passage in Hebrews that says, the reason that miracles were performed is to give validity, to point the way to the messenger. The miracles weren't the problem or the the point. The miracles were to give weight to the message. So therefore, don't worry about disease and sickness. The principle holds true for us today. Take a look at the next verse. Matthew chapter nine, verse 36. When he, as Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Compassion. So Jesus is standing there with his disciples, multitudes, thousands are standing around, And he's looking at them, and he sees a a child who's got some terrible disease. And he sees this lady who clearly has some sort of physical deformity. And he sees these people who've clearly been fighting, and there's brokenness between them. And he sees these people, and they barely have clothes to cover their bodies. And it's not because they chose to dress that way like today. And he sees people, and they look hungry, and in need, and they're desperate. And he looked at them. He has compassion. They're harassed and helpless. And he looks at the disciples. He says, look, do you see them? Do you see them? Open your eyes for a second. Do you see them? Some of the most evil atrocities in the history of the world, even in our day, have occurred because we stopped looking at people. We start seeing them through the eyes of their nationality, their color of skin, their language. We start seeing them as lawbreakers or rule breakers or different religions or whatever it may be, and we stop seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. 
Jesus came to be the great shepherd, to bring in his kingdom where he's the leader and he's building something significant. And if we don't understand that, then we will quickly get wrapped up in our church and in our country and in our politics, whatever side you're on, instead of realizing people are sheep that need a shepherd. And he looks at the disciples and he says, the reality is this, the need is so big. But the workers are so few. I could stop there, but I won't. Because I feel like I need to show you a picture that I saw this week. Don't put the picture up yet. Hang on. I was listening to a comedian. I was trying to do a bunch of writing. We had a retreat this weekend with our elders, and I was just wrapping things up. And I needed some background noise, and so I put this comedian on in the background so I could laugh. And then he messed with me. And in the middle, I posted it on Facebook. So if you're a friend of mine on Facebook, you can find it there. And uh, he messed with me in the middle of his comedic routine, he showed this picture and he told this story. Go ahead and put the picture up. This picture won a Pulitzer Prize in 1993. The gentleman who took the, uh, the photograph was named Kevin Carter. And uh, this hungry child, um, it turns out, as we would find out later, um, was on their way to the UN to try to get food and stopped because they were so weak and exhausted. And the vulture is waiting. Now, a lot of people wrote into the newspaper when this was published back in 1993 to try to find out what happened to the child. Did the child make it? What happened next? Kevin would come out and say that he chased the vulture off and then a few moments later hopped on a plane with a friend of his and flew off to the next place to take more pictures. And shortly thereafter, the gentleman who took the picture, Kevin, committed suicide. And I have no idea why. I didn't know him, never met him, he didn't tell me, didn't leave a note behind. But I can't help but wonder if it's because he didn't take that next step to do something. See, it gets really easy to simply see problems as problems that are unsolvable. And the reason I wish we had done our next series already about the bigness of God is because, see, if I could, if I could spend the next six weeks giving you a view of just the bigness of God, you'd never wonder again if there was a problem that was unsolvable. Because you'd suddenly see the universe for what the universe is. This massive massive place built by a God who is significantly larger with untold power and creativity. And of his love, there is no end. And of his mercy, there is no end. And of his patience, there is no end. And of his resources, there is no end. And I had to stop everything I was working on this week and be mad at the comedian for ruining my night. Because I wanted to laugh. I didn't want to cry. The story goes on. Apparently, um, they originally thought this was a little girl. Turns out, at least, apparently it's a little boy. And the father came out and said, the little boy actually did make it to the UN where he was fed. 
And if I remember correctly, I didn't write this down, and in 2007, ended up dying anyway of um, a disease they contracted that wasn't able to be cured. Nobody can verify whether or not that's a fully true statement. And I wonder, and I don't know, but I wonder if Kevin had done something. He did chase the vulture off. But if maybe he had put his own life and his own plans on hold for a brief moment, if Kevin might still be with us as well. See, compassion will disrupt your life. When you understand who God is and what he's trying to do in the world, it will ruin your life if you let it. But you have to believe that God wants to ruin your life. (laughs) God is not trying to make you handsome, rich, and wise. Some of you were born that way, praise God. (laughs) But it's not his mission for your life. He's trying to usher in a kingdom of love. Let me show you another passage, and let me tell you why this passage has ruined me over the last year. Go with me to Matthew chapter 14. Verse 13. Now, the very first verse, verse 13 says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Let me tell you what that is quickly because it sets up everything that I've just said to you. What has just happened in the previous verses is Jesus' cousin and very close friend and ministry colleague, a gentleman named John the Baptist, was just beheaded for his faith in Jesus and for refusing to turn away from who Jesus is and who God is. He was killed. And when the word came by messenger to Jesus, Jesus gets on a boat to a draw. Why is he trying to get away? Because he needs a break. He's got sorrow in his heart. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He feels everything you feel when friends die, especially when it's tragic at the hands of evil people. He feels terrible. Hearing of this, though, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed... He saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Jesus gets down, he's still got grief in his heart, but he sees the people, and he can't help but look at their faces. He can't help but see that they're sheep without a shepherd. He can't help but see the need, and he knows he needs to do something. That's why he's here. That's why the Father sent him. And first of all, I love the goodness of God that God gave Jesus a few moments on a boat to build him up. But then it's right back to it. I'm gonna flip my notes if you're following along in the app for a moment. The word compassion in the other passage and in this passage is the word splagnitzomai. How's that for fun? Splagnitzomai literally means to be moved in the inward parts, to feel compassion. It literally, you ever watched a movie, you ever seen a picture and something in you, like we would say it was our hearts, but to the Greeks they would describe it in their bowels, but you know that feeling, right? You know that way, that sensation. You know, like as a guy you're watching, I don't know, Gladiator or whatever that movie is, and you're like... The allergies are strong in here, man. (laughs) Ladies, you watch. I don't know what ladies watch. (laughs) 
If it were my wife, it'd be like Hallmark, you know, like, oh, he loves her. I don't know. Whatever it is, you stir, and, you, and it's not like, oh, I connect with that story. It's like, right now, if there were nobody in the room and I didn't hold back, I would lose it. That's the word compassion. There's something inside me that stirs. And Jesus, when he gets that feeling, he acts. The little phrase that I came up with, and I actually took this from another message I listened to this week, but with Rabbi Zacharias, amazing Christian teacher. He says this, he says, you know what we really need, we really need to change the world, what we really need is conviction with compassion. Conviction with compassion. We don't compromise what the gospel is, we don't compromise who Jesus is, we don't change the truth about God and his bigness and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil in the world. None of that changes. Our conviction, though, about the fact that God's kingdom is better than any other kingdom on the earth, combined with compassion, is what this world needs. It's what this world needs, and it's what it's so often missing. But here's the part where Jesus has wrecked me recently, and you gotta see this. Matthew chapter 14, uh, or chapter 14, verse 15. As evening approached, the disciples came to Jesus and said, look, Jesus, this, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Do you know what the disciples thought? Verse 17. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. We can't do that. We're too small. We don't, can't solve that problem. Jesus looks at them, verse 18, bringing them here to me. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Some estimate the number could have been well over 10,000 people. And do you know what God did when he ruined me with this passage? This same passage is seen in the book of Luke, chapters nine and 10. I think it's chapter nine specifically. But what's profound about the passage is this story, the feeding of the 5,000 comes right at the end of Jesus sending these same men out. And he says to these same disciples, go out into the world and take nothing with you. Don't take a bag, don't take a change of clothes, don't take money, take only what's on you because God's gonna provide everything you need. Now, they're probably thinking, what? Nobody does that, Jesus. Yes, but my people will because when my spirit is in you, resources aren't gonna be an issue. And so the disciples go out and they come back and they go, Jesus, you're never gonna believe this. Well, maybe you will, but it worked. Everywhere we went, God provided and we literally taught them about you and the demons had to listen to us just like they listened to you and people were healed just like we saw you do. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000. Very next verse. And Jesus looks at them. He says, Peter, you feed them. And what God said to me this past year, 2019, in the book of Luke, and I've never noticed this before until last year, and it's been ruining me. I think Jesus intended for Peter to feed them. But Peter didn't have faith big enough to believe that God could use Peter to feed them. So Peter had all the excuses in the world. I can't, I don't have enough. I only got a few fish and a couple pieces of bread, Jesus. How in the world can I do anything about the problem? And Jesus says, let me show you. Bring it here. 
Jesus is the most patient teacher in the world because like when we're with our children and we try to teach our kids over and over and over and over and over again and they don't get it and you look at them and say, ah, when are you ever going to get it? Jesus just says, come here, I'll show you again. And here's the powerful thing. When the disciples came to Jesus to get what they need, the disciples had everything they need to meet everybody else's need. This is why Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches, but apart from me, you can't do anything. You won't have what it takes. You're gonna be short on everything you need, but you keep coming back to me. Keep coming back to me. Keep coming back to me. Keep coming back to me and I will give you what you need for this world. Church, the power of compassion is not just that there are hungry and starving people in Sudan or in Peru or wherever we might find them. The power of the kingdom of God, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there are people in need in our own backyard. And they're not just poor. They're very, very wealthy. But they don't know that the love of God is for them. One of my friends, mentors, and our missionaries, a guy named P.B. John, he says this, at Care India, I give them bread so I could tell them about the bread of heaven and water so I could point them to the water of life. But in America, you might meet somebody who doesn't need bread or water. They might need peace in their home. They might need stability in their life. They might just need a father figure to show up and be present. They might just need a friend who says, can I introduce you to the one who changed my life? I want to show you a quick video, real quick. And uh, a quick video, real quick. That's not at all redundant. And um, this is of a, a good young man here in our church. And he'll let him tell his own story, and then I'll come up and we'll close. Let's just watch this video. I began volunteering with Kingsway School in the drama department for middle school. And through that and serving in that capacity, I realized that I really enjoy working with kids and that was something that I've always sort of known about myself but never acted on in a, like a real and tangible way necessarily. And then from there, I got plugged in in so many other ways at the church. It's like once one door opened, then five others opened as well and the church really became a home once I decided to step out. So that's what encouraged me to start volunteering. So shortly after I started volunteering with the school here, I realized um, I work in retail. I have a lot of co-workers that are believers and we talk openly at work and I think people know the group that are believers because we talk so much about it. Um, we're just excited to compare stories and talk about each other's church experience. And so um, there's one woman that has been outspoken just and not talking about it, essentially. She's not been interested, but I felt led in asking her if I could bring her son to church with me. And so I took the step and I decided to just ask her, which is nerve-wracking at first because you don't, part of you doesn't want to jeopardize the relationship that you have with that person, but the other half of you also would never want to turn down the promptings of the Lord, and that's, that's huge because once you say yes once, he gives you opportunities to say yes again and again. And so that kind of became my mantra last year, just finding different ways to say yes to him and serve him in new ways that I hadn't before. So I talked to her and immediately she was very excited about it. And it was just confirmation that I was doing the right thing. And so I began taking him to church and every week I'd pick him up um, if he was at home. And 
just throughout the course of about eight months or so of taking him, he really started to enjoy it and he started to talk to his mom about, a lot about it and he um, decided that he wanted to be saved a, a couple months ago. So that was just an amazing way in which I could see God moving and to be a part of where God is moving is the most gratifying thing as a believer and just to be part of the story that he's trying to craft in other people's lives. Not to bring glory to me, but to bring glory to him is beyond anything that you can experience. Ideally, the way that the church works is you bring others with you. And I mean, when I join Christ in heaven, I want to know that I took as many people with me as I can because I care enough about people for them to be there. And I care enough about them and their end result for them to be there with me and to share that. I think some people get trapped in this insular view of church where you come in and you interact with church people. And that's kind of where the end of your spiritual journey goes. But I think that, <laughs> I don't think I know that we are called to be the salt of the earth. And what does that mean? You can't stay in the church and also be the salt of the earth. You have to go out. You have to talk to others. It's just a simple reminder to, to stop and think about the ramifications of your actions because it's been hard to invite people and I have been turned down before, but I, on the other side of it, am much happier to have asked and been turned down than to not ask and not know what they would have said. So you, you just have to be really reflective in the moment and think about what, what's the worst thing that could happen because it's never, I've never been in a situation where I've asked to share my beliefs or asked someone to come to church and they've been mad and never spoken to me again. And that's what our fear is, but that's never been the case with the people that I've talked to. My great-grandmother is still living, she's 97, and she, um, I never got to meet my great-grandfather, but she always would tell me that he would pick up like five kids before church every Sunday, and just like around town, he'd drive this circuit, take them to church, and then drop them back off. And my first thought was, that is so time-consuming. And I was like, that should not be what my first reaction is to that story. It should be, that's amazing. I don't know where those kids are now, but if my grandfather was able to lead them to Christ and then they then lead their families to Christ, that's, that's how the church should function. It should be this firework of belief that one person goes up and then it goes everywhere after that. I love that. Isn't that great? This firework of belief, Jay said. What a great young man. And uh, watching him with those young boys, every parent here thought, that's exactly what it's like in my house. So I'm glad they're the same here at church. And um, <laughs> what a cool story about how God moved in him and stirred in him. And I wonder, I wonder, what would have happened if Jay's hadn't stepped into the awkwardness? All right, annoying question. At the end of your life, when you look back on your days, how will you know if you succeeded? And I'm telling you now, as somebody who has recently watched a loved one pass, as somebody who talks to people in these moments all the time, it won't have anything to do with the amount of money you make or the house you lived in or the car you drove. I promise you, I promise you. It will not have to do with how many trophies you collected. It will not have to do with the new pair of shoes or purse you bought. God bless all those things. What it will have to do with is when you look back over your life, it'll have to do with the quality of the relationships you had. And that'll have to do with both in the family of faith and outside the family of faith. 
Little phrase I added to Rabbi Zacharias, Zabbi Zacharias, I can't talk. It's conviction plus compassion leads us to commitment. You put these three things together. You put conviction with compassion, it will lead you to acting, to doing, to being engaged, and not just talking about it. So who is God trying to show you needs to know that God is love? A real name. Do you have one? A person, a situation that God may have placed you uniquely in their life to step in. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Where do you need to step into the pain? And I'll close with this great quote by Kyle Eidelman. He says this, and this is how the gospel changes the world. It's one person at a time telling one person at a time all about Jesus. What I wanna do right now is I wanna, I'm gonna actually ask God to ruin you. I'm gonna literally invite God to come in here and wreck our lives, wreck our plans, wreck our dreams for this world. What I'm gonna ask is that as you take communion today, as you take that bread and you take that juice, don't take it and think that Jesus was hanging on the cross just thinking of you. Jesus was hanging on a cross thinking of every person in the world ever created that he longs to be known as a son and a daughter of God. And may God give you a name that you can't let go of. Let's pray. Father, with hands up towards heaven, we surrender to you our life. All that we have, all that we've done, all that we will ever become. God, ruin us. Ruin us. Take those thoughts and those dreams about the perfect world and the perfect situation and the perfect family and the perfect home and the perfect life and blow it up and replace it with something more beautiful, better, something worth living for. Something that when we get to our last day and we look back, we will have nothing but peace and joy knowing that we fulfilled what you have called us to do. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And now I pray for the people here, God, who are gonna step forward to take communion and bring their offering. God, I pray that you would plant a name so deeply in their heart that they can't let it go, that your spirit won't let them let it go. And like our friend Jace, who we just watched, boldly, boldly step out and just let you do whatever you choose to do. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name.